Hello? There it is. Morning. Good morning. How y'all doing? Good. Good to be with y'all. Good to see you. Everybody had a good week. Um, got a lot going on this morning. A lot going on in the church coming up, so it's a great time to be part of it and dig in. So if you want, we'll stand up and praise God. We'll, uh, ask him to join us. Father, we love you. We're here for you this morning. For you because of you. Uh, we're grateful for that, that we have hope in you. So as we sing your sing your name, as we praise your name, uh, just uh, give us hearts and minds focused on you as we hear your word. Give us ears to hear, God. Uh, whatever you say to us today through Leonard, I pray that we can hear it and, and grow. Uh, so we praise you for everything that's happening in this church. Uh, pray for your blessing on all of it, all the events coming up and as we come together and drive forward in your name. Uh, so we pray for this morning. Uh, we love you. And just help us grow closer to you today. Creation coming 
Yes, he is. God, we love you. We're here for you this morning. Speak to us today, God. Let us hear what you're saying. We pray for Leonard, for clarity and unbreakness. Amen. I don't know about you, but I just love that song. It's just a wonderful precursor of coming attractions when we think about uh, that gathering around the Lord's throne when it's all done and our work here is finished and we can um, know that everything that needed to be made right is made right and it's all settled, uh, which is good. But in the meantime, we got work to do. And um, one of the best places I think to start this year as we are just thinking about the year ahead uh, is uh, along the lines of our kids and the work that Amy's doing. So Amy, why don't you come up and tell us a little bit about the work that uh, needs to be done. All right, thank you, Pastor. Good morning, church. I have these beautiful helpers with me today. You girls can come on over here. So thank you and welcome to Megan and Sammy. I almost said Maggie again, too, and I did not. I stopped myself. Anyway, good morning, church. If you do not know me, my name is Amy. They will all call me Miss Amy. Um, I am the new children's students and kids. We've changed the wording a little bit, but it's students and kids ministry here at First Christian Church. And I talked a little bit last week about all the new and wonderful things we have coming up. And if there are slides, you can just scroll them in the back. Um, but there are quite a few new things that we are doing, and I promised you that I've been working really, really hard, and I have been, and Brittany has been amazing, so I want to give a plug to that, because she is amazing, yeah, um, but I also had a little bit of a meeting last week with some of the new volunteers, and it was a wonderful turnout, so if you attended, thank you, and we have another meeting today right afterwards. Here's why this is so important, because our student and kid ministry looks a lot different now in this new year coming up. And all of these girls and all of the students and all of the leaders and helpers and volunteers are helping me get ready. However, I need to describe that to you a little bit because it looks much different. Um, I will not be asking for your firstborn child, your right arm, and three pints of blood, which Jason said that would scare enough people anyway. Um, I'm not asking for that. But I am asking for everyone to either lift a finger or lend a hand. You might only be able to lift a finger once a semester and help out and sign up for just one time, and that's okay. You might say, hey, I'm all in. I have lots of time. I can lend a whole hand. But the reality is we need the whole church to either do one or the other, lift a finger or lend a hand. Aren't they so great? So wonderful. Um, but it's going to be you signing up. I will not sign you up. It will be everyone signing up. Right now, there's only 56 spots from now until Christmas that we need someone to sign up for on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon. That's not very many. Good news, there's more than 56 people here already. So today, you will have received one of these cute little hands. On the back is a description of our new ministries and the logos and the branding that goes with them. But everyone has a little bit of a helping hand to lift a finger or lend a hand. Now, all you need to do is put your name and your information and then check. If you need to check one finger, that's wonderful. We thank you. If you can check the whole hand and say, hey, I can help in all of these ways, Thank you. There is a way for every single person to serve in this church. There are two new signs in the back for our two upcoming events, the Ice Cream Social and the Fall Fest. So it might be that you can bring marshmallows or you can bring cider or you can bring ice cream. You can lift a finger 
and help out with one of those. Or you can lift, hold, lend a hand and check all of them. Whatever works for you, but I need everyone. Here's the reality. I am here, and I'm very, very thankful, and I do not take lightly that God has called me here and that there have been many prayers to get me here, and I'm thankful for that. But here's the reality. Can you hold this for me real quick, Sandy? I am one person. On a Sunday morning, we need six people. Six people. That's how many people we need to fill the rooms upstairs. Can you put it closer? Thank you. We need six people. Now, I am only one person. I cannot be all six people. Right? The girls said that looks pretty silly when I showed them earlier. It's just not possible. Here's how I know. I'm a woman, I have tried to be more than one person and clone myself. It's not possible. I can only be one person. I need at least five people every Sunday to lift that finger and lend a hand and help make our kids and student ministries a success. So today, if you have 10 minutes after service, please stop in the parlor and see me. And then you can see what this is really like. This is really doable for all of us to unite together. Because this generation, look, they're wonderful and they really deserve it. So please sign up. If you cannot attend the meeting, that's okay. Just turn in your little paper. No threat. I might have them begging in the back. Can you beg a little bit, please? Just bat a little eyes. Before you leave. Or we might knock it on your door and show up at your house. I'm just kidding. Um, but just turn this in and help us really make this year a wonderful new success here at First Christian Church. So thank you, church. Thank you, girls. Well, I'll tell you what. If that didn't motivate you, I don't know what will. Because it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Whatever you guys are doing... Uh, I wish I could join you, but because um, uh, we can't do finger puppets and stuff like that in what I do, so uh, that's definitely the place to be. So I'm so grateful for the energy that Amy's put into her stewardship over our kids and uh, the people that have been supporting her, and the prayers have gone up for sure. Uh, it has been a blessing for, for, for uh, in ways that I can't even begin to describe. And um, it's cool to see God work the way he's been working in our church in the moment that we're in and giving us reasons for uh, hope in the ministry and the stewardship uh, that we have at First Christian Church. Uh, so, but it's a, but it's a us together thing, as we've talked about, and we got to keep that in mind, don't we? So uh, before we get into the message, just want to offer up a pastoral prayer uh, on behalf of some people that uh, have been heavy on our minds uh, some of you may be aware, Wendell Goddard fell last week and he broke his leg, and um, he's in a cast right now and doing good, but he's got a, uh, an uncertain future regarding the work that's being done for his liver. Uh, he's got a doctor's appointment on Tuesday, uh, and I know he would appreciate your prayers. He's, he's watching us uh, right now online, uh, so glad that um, he can at least do that, but um, keep him lifted up, and Virginia Bond as well. Uh, who is also dealing with uh, some, some life issues that uh, are going to create some changes in her world. And um, then keep uh, Gail Hill lifted up in her prayers. Gail has got a, quite a struggle that she's facing, and she's been heavy on her hearts, 
and hopefully the Lord will, will give her the grace and the mercy and the healing and the peace that she needs. Uh, anything that you brought into this room today that we can perhaps uh, lift up to the Lord alongside what we've just mentioned? Anything? Yeah, Diane. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, so Okay. Good. Mhm. Mm Awesome. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think God hears us in our pain in ways that, um, or we hear God in our pain in ways that we can't otherwise. Uh, so just, just to recap, I know you guys probably didn't hear that, but um, uh, Diane's daughter-in-law, Amy, has uh, been in need of a corneal transplant. There's been a lot of barriers with the insurance and getting this resolved. And God has sort of been working in that through the prayers of, of a lot of people that have come around her on that. And uh, tomorrow she's got a consultation. There's still some issues in play, but uh, in the process, uh, she is getting near to getting the transplant and we're just trusting God's gonna do that. But um, her connection to the Lord has not been great. And through this, she has seen how God has been working and um, paying attention to that. And uh, it's really opened up her heart in ways that you wouldn't expect. But we know that with our own math, people that we pray for, people that you're thinking about right now that maybe are disconnected from the Lord and you're thinking, well, I, I can't see them ever coming around. Never say never with the Lord. Uh, there are always ways that he sees that we don't that he opens up hearts, and one of them is just the pain that people go through. Don't wish it on anybody, but in, in the experience of it, we tend to recognize we need someone greater than ourselves. And uh, we know the compassionate heart of Jesus goes to work in those lives that we think could never possibly open up to the Lord. So be praying about that person in your world that you're thinking about right now and trust that in God's timetable, he'll open up the door. And I know you've been praying for Amy for a long time, and uh, this is really a breakthrough. So we want to see God feed that and see her come to health in the Lord. So um, let's keep that lifted up. Uh, anything else? Any praises or anything? Okay, pretty quiet group today. Uh, so let's just go ahead and, and take uh, our, our spirits before the Lord um, and, and these things that we've mentioned. Our Lord, we are grateful for... Every opportunity that we have to center our lives in you, to take the substance of our experience in the course of the week and recognize that in, in, in everything that we go through, everything that um, we're challenged by, everything that we depend on you for, uh, you are there. You promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. And that superabundant grace that you offer enables us 
uh, to move forward in our walk with you and with each other as the body. We thank you, Father, not only for calling us and equipping us through the experiences that we have and, and the pains that we, uh, we, we, we seek your comfort in, and then we take all of that, Lord, and we know we lay it before you, and you say, now go use that to help somebody else. And so we pray, Father, that you give us that vision to see how it is that you have called us uniquely to minister to the people around us based on what you've led us through. May that testimony begin to expand in the hearts and minds as we see that possibility again. And I do pray for loved ones in, 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 in connection to everyone in this room and those who are gathering with us online that are far away, that somehow in the course of uh, their own experience, they will hear your voice and that they will be open to it and we can see that change. So we celebrate that when we see it, Lord, and we give honor to whom honor is due and that certainly is you as you, you've done uh, this wonderful work in Amy's life. And we pray that you would bring healing to her as she anticipates this eye surgery. We pray, Father, for uh, Wendell, that you would give him the strength that he needs for the weeks ahead in his healing process, and that you would encourage him as he lives in the uncertainty of what's going to happen with, uh, with his health. We pray for Virginia. We ask that you just help her to see that um, uh, the hope that she has is, is not misplaced, and that the experience and trial that she's going through, um, that you are there, and there have been so many, so many that have come alongside her and helped her through this, for which we are truly grateful. We thank you, Father, that as Gail has gone through this long struggle of battling cancer, that you have shown up, and you have provided inner healing, and we don't know the outcome of where you're going with her, but we just trust, Father, that regardless, um, whether you heal her now or whether you heal her ultimately, that she will know the security and the love of your care. We ask, Father, that you just help us as a church as we just um, not only just ponder, but rather take to heart the challenge that Amy just gave us. We see the lives of our young people living in a world that some of us would even say, I don't know if I'd want to bring kids into this world. And yet uh, our responsibility, our stewardship is to help them to have the best chance to stay anchored in you and to have lives that are able to face the trials and challenges of the world ahead and to know that they are supported by a church that loves them. So, Father, I pray that you give us a heart to see that and to walk into that as you lead us by your spirit uh, to be the stewards of the children and families that are, are called to be a part of First Christian. We thank you for Amy and for uh, all the ways that she's just manifesting um, the uh, the. the the needs through the programming, through the relationships, through the conversations, through the connections that she's already created with the kids and with the adults. We're so thankful, and we pray that you continue to bless that and, and help us to come alongside her in, uh, in the work that you've called her to do. And Father, as uh, we take uh, everything that is hidden in our hearts and we lay it before your throne, and, and we pray that um, you would speak to those things in ways that are redemptive, ways that are healing, perhaps ways that uh, lead to new opportunities for your kingdom. We ask, Father, that you administer to that as well. And as we lift up the name of your Son, may our hearts come alongside that um, as we pray together our Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me now? Our Father... 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 19. And as we do that, uh, we're going to be talking about the conclusion of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And it's getting ready to happen. Uh, but before we get to that space in, in, in our worship time, um, I just want to start off with a question. What would you do if you had a million dollars? If somebody just said, hey, Susie, I'm going to write you che a check for a million dollars. How do you think that would affect your world? What would you do with that? And let's just be extravagant here. Let's make it $10 million, okay? <laughs> That's one of the things that might happen, is that all of a sudden, as important as you are, you will be very important in the eyes of many people. But the question will be, what do you do with that? And will that affect the way your world is, is functioning as it is, as you come to know it and enjoy it in your relationships and the way that God's provided and all of that? My guess is if you were given $10,000 or $10 million, um, there is a whole lot of possibilities that would uh, emerge from that in your mind. But alongside that are a whole lot of challenges. And I would say problems that um, are potentially insurmountable. If you ever heard the stories of people that won the lottery, we all know the cautionary tale of families that won the lottery and immediately, you know, they're not telling anybody, they're not telling the press, uh, but it leaks out, people find out. And then you hear in the aftermath of the, um, you know, the, the outcome after four or five years, what happens when you are given that and it doesn't end the way you ever thought it would. And some of us, you know, who've never had access to any, that kind of wealth at all, really have no idea what that, that means to have that amount of resources, if you want to look at it that way, that we are called to manage. And the impact that would have on every relationship that we would have in terms of, are they my friend because, or are they just my friend? And I know, Chuck, I know it's all sincere. You know, you've always had this sort of, you know, and that's why you sit there. You're keeping an eye on her, Right. But you do start to question everybody's motives. And so what it does is it stirs up a lot of things in the hearts of people in ways that most of the time you don't see that come to the surface. And there are some people that would just say, you know what, I don't want it. Some people might say, I'd give it to the church. And then I've actually heard those stories where people get that money for the church and then all of a sudden everybody stops giving. And then everybody's fighting over what to do with that money. And what is supposed to be a resource and a blessing becomes, in fact, a curse. Now, why is that? Because somewhere along the way, there's a gap between managing, you know, our checking accounts, our saving accounts, you know, perhaps our retirement accounts. And we're always thinking, well, I just barely have enough to, you know, make it through the, the day or the week or the month or the year. And retirement is going to be tight to a place where you have everything you need and beyond 
taken care of. There's something about moving from one ability to another ability that if you just jump from one to the other, it will not work, right? But if you learn over time to, to manage and invest and to go through uh, failures and successes and just the experience of learning to manage your wealth, it seems like it gets better as you get to that place. And a lot of people I know who maybe have that kind of wealth, or I say a few people, maybe one, and some uh, other people I've heard about, but let's just put it this way. What I'm aware of is that some of them just kind of live the life that's a middle-class life that they came out of. For some reason, they've managed to keep that resource, to use it well, and to, in the end, not really change on the inside or the outside the relationships that they have. Now, if you can just take that experience that we've seen play out tragically and imagine what Jesus is doing when he is taking something that really has the effect of the most profound, richest resource that human beings could ever have, and that is the gift of salvation that we have in him, the gift of eternal life, the promise of claiming us from an adversary who's trying to kill us, and the hope that one day everything will be made right in our world that we are chronically struggling with. And if you consider that, there isn't, there isn't a number that you could come up with that says, I can purchase that. It's too big and too great. And Jesus is getting ready to bring that to bear upon the lives of the people. But the uncertainty that lingers in his mind is, how is it? that the people that I give this very precious gift to, the gospel, how is it that they're going to take care of it, that they're going to manage it, that they're going to use it? Are they going to be entitled and say, hey, you know what, we got it, you don't? Or, hey, I'm so blessed, but I don't really care about your life. Are we going to be selfish and say, um, it's really just me and Jesus. Um, I hope it goes well with you, but I really don't have time to really invest in you with time, energy, and attention to help you to know him. And Jesus is pondering this because he's been talking about the kingdom and the time that is yet to come as far as his death, burial, and resurrection in ways that they, they're not even comprehending it yet. And we're at a place in the book of Luke where all the talk that he's offered, all the parables that he's described, what it means to be a part of the kingdom, what it means for God to show up in our world, all that stuff is now coming to an end. Because the thing he talked about, having to go to Jerusalem and die, well, it's just right around the corner. And we left off last week where we talked about Zacchaeus. You guys remember that? And some of you wanted to sing it. Some of you were like, I want to sing it, Pastor. Some of you, I think, were, would, have, would have come up here and said, I'll sing the Zacchaeus song for you. And um, uh, maybe another time, perhaps. Or see Amy. Amy uh, is actually looking for singers for the kids that can sing the Zacchaeus song. So there you go. But Jesus is in a town that is uh, about 18 miles away from Jerusalem. And as he's leaving this town, it happens to be one of the oldest towns on record 
as far as historians, you know, when they look at all the towns on the planet, it's the oldest town. It's a storied town. It's a town, actually, that is situated in the lowest place on planet Earth, just right by the Dead Sea. It's a town that we know of as Jericho, and Jesus is coming out of Jericho. So if, if that doesn't help you to imagine it, um, I want to show you a couple of pictures of what that kind of looks like. Uh, so on the screen, I'm just going to uh, put the first slide up there if we can. You guys probably may be bored out of your minds or maybe you're intrigued, but uh, at the bottom of this set of mountains that are cascading upward uh, is the city of Jericho, 400 feet below sea level, below sea level, okay? And then um, it is actually a destination like Arizona for people that are trying to get away from the winter climate. And it's a place where it's dry and you feel healthy and you can go down to the Dead Sea and you can, you know, do something that is revitalizing. And in this location, there is a palace just right up on the hill that everybody knows about. And it's a palace that signals to everybody politics. Now, I don't know how many of you talked about politics today with somebody, talked about politics yesterday with somebody, but a lot of people I know, politics are just right underneath the surface. It doesn't take very long, does it, for people to start talking about politics. And in the mind of Jesus and his followers, what was happening in the political landscape, well, it was unsettling. Partly because there was a king that came and he wasn't really from them, but he says, I'm the king of the Jews. And essentially, it was a guy who was loosely connected to the Jews by marriage who said, I want to rule this region called um, uh, Israel or Judea or Samaria. I want to be the ruler over that. So he goes to Caesar, and he says, I want to reign over this. Whatever your interests are, Caesar, that you're trying to make happen in your domination of the, of the world as it's known, I want to make that happen here in the land where the Jews live. So this guy was known as Herod the Great. And he happened to have this conversation with, with Jesus uh, about 40 years before Jesus was born. And this may not seem like it's, it's meaningful here, but it provides the backdrop for where people are coming from. And Herod had a bunch of kids and they're all jockeying for position. Whenever he died, they wanted his spot. And so there's a lot of trickery, chicanery, even assassinations happening. And as it came out in the wash, Herod had a son named Ar Archelaus, okay? And I don't know if that's exactly what he looked like, but that's a bust of somebody in that time that made a, a, a sculpture of him. So this guy was ambitious, and he wanted his dad's job and he had to compete with his brothers. And he also had to, had to try to fill that void whenever his dad died, right before Jesus was born, uh, to rule over this region. So here's what he did. He went to Caesar and he said, just like you ha had my dad, Herod the Great, rule over this area, I want to rule over it. And he takes... Uh, uh, a delegation of people, and they go and they talk to him. But right behind him are a bunch of Jews that say, we don't want him. This guy is not a king from our, our family. He's a, he's a pretend king. And he's going to make it worse. Well, 
there was, there was a big discussion, and it turned out Caesar said, you know what, I'll just make you ethnarch, which isn't the king, but it's the king over that ethnicity. So it was like, okay, I'll take it. And so when Jesus was born, this guy was ruling. Now, this backstory, I think, is going to be helpful, hopefully, because I don't know if you remember or not, but when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, where did they go shortly after? Where did they have to flee to? Because Herod was wanting to do what? Slaughter all of the, all the, all the little boys that were under the age of two, right? So they go to Egypt, and then finally after a period of time, they're like, oh, we can finally come back. Only on their way back to Beth, Bethany, the town outside of Jerusalem, they're warned. Even though Herod's dead, his son Archelaus, I guess that's how you say it, he's in control. And your life is probably still going to be under threat. So Joseph and Mary wanted to go back to their hometown, and they couldn't. So they went way up north, out of his reach, and settled in Galilee. So in the backdrop of Jesus' story is the inability to come home to his homeland as an infant and grow up with his family, okay? Now, let's fast forward 33 years. Jesus is coming out of Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem as the king, as the Messiah, as the one who's going to now rule, but in a way that no one really expected. Jesus knows all this stuff. So they're heading up this hill, which let me just show you another, another slide to kind of give you a little bit of frame of reference. So they're going up this hill, and it's almost three, 300 feet above uh, elevation, or 3,000 feet elevation change from way down in Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem, 18 miles farther. So that's a pretty good hike. And on the way up there, he starts to tell a story. And if you ever told stories, a lot of times you, you tell them in a way that people can relate to the things that you're talking about. And so as they begin their journey up this hill, right outside of Jericho, scholars have, have come to conclude that he stops and he looks up the hill. And the next slide, this is what he sees. This. Herod Archelaus's summer palace. It is the place where a tyrant who actually killed a bunch of people at the temple some years past, and the memory of the slaughter of those people, that's literally the word that the historian Josephus uses, the slaughter of those people at the temple, that memory was still lingering in everybody's mind. And so when they walk by this, even though Herod is now gone and Herod's brother, the one who was responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, is behind the wheel, Jesus stops, and it would be like me telling a story about Jesus and sheep with that in the background. So this kind of sets up the scene because the parable that we're going to look at, is quite honestly, one of the most perplexing parables I've ever preached on, and I, I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. I've been stewing on it all week and thinking about this guy all week, Herod 
Archelaus, somebody that most of us don't even spend any time pondering. Matter of fact, there's not much about him except this story. And what is the story? Well, if we look at Luke chapter 19, 27, we read these words, or 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell, tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, or some passages say on his way to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, like Herod's kingdom, only Jesus is in charge and Herod is not. Only Jesus is going to control the military and Herod won't. Only Jesus will manage the kingdom and its resources and Herod won't. So in their mind, take Herod and replace him with Jesus. And Jesus is trying to explain to them that is not how it works. He's trying to put a little bit of shock therapy on them by what he's about to say. So, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately in the form I just described, he said, therefore, a nobleman, that is a guy who is in the elite class of, of rulers, somehow connected but not necessarily formally a ruler, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Sound familiar? Have you been paying attention? And then he calls 10 of his servants, and he gave them 10, ten minas. So a mina is, um, it's, uh, I think, 100 minas are a drachma. A drachma is a week's wages. So just a little bit of money, not much. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. So even before Archelaus had gone to um, Rome to talk to Caesar, he was already acting like a king because there was a will, and someone had changed the will at the last minute to say that he was the king. So you probably heard those stories. And so he's already acting like it. And he's just assuming that all I got to do is talk to Caesar, have him give it the stamp of approval, and then we're back in business. And so he tells these guys, hey, you know what? We're setting it up, and I want you to be responsible with the stuff that we have because it's going to be great. So he gives them resources, just a tiny amount, and he says, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, well, they hated him. Not servants, but the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So everybody I know who's looking at the the summer palace of Herod in the background are all thinking, oh, we remember that story. That was only 30 years ago, but it's still there. It still stings. Now, if you're a little kid, you don't remember it, but if you're most of our age, you're like, I do remember that. And so when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. So, hey, guys, Come in here and tell me what you've done with what I've given you. Um, and so his hope was that, I don't know exactly what, where Jesus is going with this parable, but I assume his hope was he could see who was on his side and who was not on his side. Because he wanted to be very clear that if you're with me, you've got to be loyal. 
And if you're not, it's a different story. And so he, he asked what they, what did you gain by taking, let's just say $100 and investing it, using it, how well did you do? And it kind of reminds me of the guy who starts out with nothing and then he ends up with, um, you know, a free bicycle and then he exchanges that for a go-kart and then he exchanges that for a motorcycle, exchanges that for a car and somehow along the way ends up with a house by the time he's done. That's what he's looking for. All right. So guys were given account. The first came before him, and he said, um, Lord or king, your mina has made ten minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful and very little, you will be given authority over ten cities. I know I can trust you. And then the next guy uh, he came and he said, Lord, I've, I've got five out of this. He said, that's pretty good. I need somebody to help me manage this. I'll give you five cities. And then another came of the ten saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man you take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. Now, imagine somebody saying that to Archelaus. Because basically, he's hurt his reputation, he's fearful of him, and his response is, hey, you know what? I, if, I, if, I, if I invest it and I lose it, I'm dead. At least if I give it back to him, maybe he'll let me live. And he said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at its coming I might have collected interest from it? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the guy who has ten already. And they said, well, that's not fair. He already has ten minas. And then he says, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, because with this guy, if you're not for me, you're against me. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want to want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the story. If you've been a believer for a while, maybe you've read the story and you're like, that's harsh. First of all, he's not a trustworthy uh, leader. And then he's basically going to a place and saying, hey, make me king. And then he's coming back hoping to have all of this power that will result from that. And then he's seeking out people to be in his sort of uh, management cohort that will be loyal. And he's basically going to slaughter all of them. You see, with Herod, slaughtering is a thing. Whether you're slaughtering males that are born at a particular time, two years and younger, or whether you're slaughtering people in the temple because they went on a delegation to Caesar and spoke against me, and when they came back... Well, 
I had to make an example out of them. And what better place to make an example out of them, Archelaus said, than in the temple. And so when people went, and it was on the Passover, and then he canceled Passover. Now, the reason I have to set all this up, and maybe you're thinking, man, I wish I'd have stayed home today. I didn't know it was going to be a history lesson. The reason I'm setting it up is because Jesus is up to something here. First of all, he's been saying time and time again that my kingdom is going to be different. It's going to be peaceful. And we know that because in the next, next week, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey that is a, rep, a signpost of peace. And as he's trying to communicate that difference, he's hoping that when people see him, they'll see him as that kind of king. But he also knows that as he comes into Jerusalem and he goes up to that place that is his destination, Mount Zion, he's going to be very misunderstood. But even beyond that, the people that God had called to be faithful representatives of his purposes, beginning with Abraham through Moses all the way through King David, and finally the people that we know as the Jewish people who settled back in the Holy Land after they were in exile for disobedience, and they rebuilt the temple. Those people were hoping that there would be a day when God would return to the temple and the glory days of David and Solomon would return. They're waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah shows up. But it's not in a way that they ever imagined. It's not in a way that says, I'm a political Messiah. I'm going to have the best army. I'm going to have the best military uh, arsenal. I'm going to have the best of everything. And we're going to take on the world. That was what they hoped. But Jesus comes and it's almost a joke because he's getting ready to be crucified and the charges, you're the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, huh? Where's your military? Huh? Where's your power and influence? Whatever. I'm, I'm done with this. But back to before the event, Jesus is anticipating that he's going to be rejected. And so he goes up this road in anticipation of a confrontation. And he provokes it because shortly after this, he triumphantly enters into the town on a donkey. He goes directly to the temple, and then he just starts throwing tables up, and he starts yelling at the money changers, and he creates total havoc. And people are like, what is he doing? And essentially, Jesus is trying to show us, and as we look backwards at the story, it makes sense now, that God is very upset with the way his people have represented his purposes to the remainder of the world and even their own kind. So you got backtracking, guys like Zacchaeus, who says, I want to be a part of the things of God but the people of God are keeping me away from it. 
So I'll just be a tax collector. You got a guy that's born blind who wants to see God not only with his eyes but in his spirit, but has been disconnected because the temple complex people said, we don't allow your kind here. There's a prodigal son who comes back after the prayers of his father finally in their own timeline manifest in his repentance. And the older brother says, why are you letting him back in? And there's all these reasons that Jesus has provided along the way that describe the disconnection that people have between themselves and God and for many reasons having to do with the way the religious establishment, rather than opening up the door and the path to God, said, we have all these rules, and we've neatly defined them, and we've neatly defined who God is, and you can only come under these conditions. And most people said, those conditions are way beyond my ability to meet, and they felt shut out. So when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's making a bold statement to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the way you've been doing it has not been in alignment with God's purposes. And there has to be a reordering of things. And all the teachings that we've been talking about for months on end about the kingdom being different, about people being made in the God's God's image rather than a pecking order of power and who's, who's where and who can jockey for position, but rather all of us being made in God's image but having different and unique giftings for the body and using them as we're called together, working in alignment and in harmony under the lordship of Christ. All these rules that society has set up that says this is the way it is. If you're not good enough or you don't have the right connections or if you don't have the right appearance, you don't matter. And Jesus invalidates all that by saying, in the kingdom, you do matter. Now, I know when people come to church here, one of their first thoughts is, well, I know I'm not good enough to be there. And one of my greatest fears is they'll come in and they'll feel like, well, these people got it together. And if I just get together, I can probably come more. But what perhaps you don't realize is that we're here because none of us have had it together. We're in the process of getting it together in Christ, but only in him. And there's a humility that comes with that that says, hey, we want you here because uh, we are the island of misfits by the definition of the world. We are the people that God has said I'm calling you, and the only requirement is that you trust my son, that you trust the authority of his voice, and you allow it to shape how you look at life and how you go through life. Most of the people there said, I want to, but the religious people have gotten in the way, and I'm confused. Or they've said, the political leaders have created such chaos that I feel hopeless. And in response to all that, Jesus says, but with me, with me, 
all things are possible. With me, when you go through COVID and you get worried about things collapsing and falling apart, politicians showing themselves for who they are and their interests are, supply chains not working, people struggling, fear in the air, anxiety, all that stuff, Jesus says, but I'm able. I'm able to lead you through this. You've got to trust me. He's trying to cultivate, despite all of the circumstances that you and I go through in life, an awareness that through him, we find what we need. Through him, we reconnect with God. Through him, we rediscover who we were supposed to be to begin with. Through him, we delay all the lies that we've been and lived out. Through him, we are going through a process of transformation. Through him, everything changes. Through him, there is an invisible reality that is very tangibly felt. It's a peace that passes all understanding. It is a connection to him and a connection to a body of people that says, hey, we love you and we accept you. And we want you to be a part of this body. No matter where you are, what you've done, where you come from, we'd love for you to be a part of this. So why did he tell this story? I think what he wanted to do was make a layer of description of a story that everybody remembered, but he also wanted to create a layer of comparison and contrast. And there are just a couple of takeaways that, that, I, that I've gathered from this. And one of them is Jesus is not going to come in and slaughter people. Matter of fact, as we read the story, as it unfolds, the only person that gets slaughtered is him. And when Jesus goes to up that hill and he's in that staging area before going into the city on the donkey, we, we read these words uh, in Luke 19, 41 through 44. So at the top of the hill, if we can put that up there, it says, when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes because you don't want me. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and then hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. All right, now this is some kind of heavy stuff, but essentially Jesus is looking backward to the time when the Herods took over, and he's looking forward to 70 AD when history tells us the Romans came in and said, we're just tired of all the nonsense happening in this, in this country. We're tired of the mismanagement of the Herods. We're tired of the rebellion and backbiting of the Jews. We're just going to destroy it. So the beautiful temple of Herod the Great, no stone was left one on top of another. And even this one got destroyed along the way. The Romans just came in and said, we are shutting it down. And Jesus cries over that because it said it didn't have to be that way. If you had embraced me and my vision, 
this could have gone in a different direction, but he knows they won't. And he's trying to unsettle them. Have you ever had something happen to you where you're like, yeah, I knew I needed to think about that or process that or pay attention to that. Now I'm in a crisis and I have full attention and I have to do something about it. I had that happen to me last winter when my big water tank that is made out of fiberglass, they say it's good for about 15 years and you should replace it because it starts to delaminate on the inside. And then one day you wake up and it's just busted open and water just spewing everywhere. Well, I weighed about 20 and then I heard it. Then boom. And then I hear water running like, it's a, like there's a river running through our house down in the basement. And I'm like, oh, that tank blew. And I go down there, and sure enough, it's busted open. And I got water everywhere, and I'm thinking, this is not happening. But there's something about that kind of cataclysm that forces the point. And what Jesus is hoping that the disciples have heard and heard and heard him talk about these things, and they've just kind of put it to the back burner saying, yeah, we'll think about that later. And maybe it's the same as applied to you. You've heard and heard about the Jesus thing ever since you've come out of the pandemic, and you're wondering, do I really need to take him that seriously? And Jesus is hoping that right now as you hear it, yes, you will. But he's also thinking that some of us will not until that thing happens. And he doesn't want that thing to happen where all of a sudden you've got a major crisis on your hand. All of a sudden, the, the Jesus can that you've been kicking down the road for so long, well, I just thought maybe another day I'll think about it. And Jesus is saying, i got a couple of things I want you to take away from this. So here are the takeaways. The first one is we're all accountable to God for how we conduct our journey through his world. And he's explaining that in many different ways along the way. But here he's saying, basically, if you think that master, the way he handled his servants and the disloyal ones, he said, in some ways, that's kind of what happens to us. If we delete God out of our world, we end up being caught up in, in all of its crisis. And in the end, we give an account that may not be the best experience for us, but the hope is that we'll be just like the rewarded servants who said, hey, you know what? You came, you asked for an account, here it is. All well and good. But then there's one who said, I didn't take you seriously, and it got pretty harsh. I don't know how God's going to conclude all of this. I think his hope is that everyone will come to an awareness that Jesus is the Messiah, that we, we, we turn away from all the things that we've oriented our life around, and we begin to put him as the center of our vision. He's trusting that that'll happen, but he's also using the pain of our lives in this life to bring us to that awareness. So whatever it takes for God to get our attention, he will. And as he does that, he wants us to see that there is an end to all of this. And the end is... What are you going to do with the gospel if you've been given it? So here's a couple of responses. If you're a person like myself who's been given the gift of the gospel, who knows the joy of having uh, Jesus in your life and the blessing that it creates, well, there's us. So let's go to the next slide. And that is those who associate with them are responsible for a ministry of service. 
And maybe you come from a Catholic tradition or some tradition that says, well, there's the clergy and then there's the laity. There's the people that do ministry and then there's the rest of the people that just try to be faithful. But by Jesus' account, everybody who is called to the body of Christ has a role. It's like a family. Any of you are part of a family where everybody's doing something or two people are doing something and everybody else is saying, hey, work harder. Which family do you want to be a part of? God's saying, it's not even about that. It's about the joy that you find in serving. It's the joy that you find in being a part of the, the enterprise of the kingdom of God, despite the hell that is happening around us. It is the blessing of being in relationship with people that are centered in the cross of Christ, that know the humility of our, of our own shortcomings and recognize the image of God in other people around us. There's something special about that. And so those of us who know him, we got to ask him, Lord, given the way you've made me, my circumstances, my, my work, my life, how do you want to use that for your purpose? And then there are people who haven't learned to trust him, who maybe are kind of like that wicked servant, but necessarily wouldn't say, I'm wicked, because the servant actually did what the what the Jewish Mishnah said to do, hey, you know what? If you get some money and you don't want to go anywhere, bury it in the ground. That's what he did. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to take the gift of the gospel and embrace it so that it can be, begin to take on a life of its own in your life that you can't even count, quantify the outcome. So let's go to the next slide after that. Those who reject him are accountable for not recognizing who he was and is. And this is kind of hard, isn't it? Because our culture says, you be you. You be your own definition of what you think is right and wrong. You, you follow your own journey. Follow your dreams. I'm not saying all that stuff is wrong, but if it's just you and no God and no authority of God's voice over your life, it's a road to misery. And why is it that we live in a world that's so divisive? Because everybody does what they want. And it doesn't work that way. There has to be an overarching voice that says, hey, you're free to serve. You're free to live in me. You're free to do so much, but it is under the authority of my voice. And we have to learn that, don't we? We have to learn to hear his voice and say, what do you want me to do? And we have to learn to trust him, even when we feel like doing something different. And believe me, I think we've all been there. And when we're, we are tested or challenged or tempted to do something different, Jesus is saying, I know where that road goes. And you don't always have the ability to see the outcome. But I know the beginning from the end. I want to tell you, even though my way doesn't always make sense, it is the only way. And if you decide, hey, you know what? I like the narrative that the world says. I like that script. Hey, do your own thing. You'll end up being empty and alone and just walking in a circle in your own selfishness. That's how it ends. Jesus says, I don't want you to be empty. I want to fill you. 
I don't want you to be alone. I want to put you in a community. It goes on forever. I want you to be satisfied in every way that God has designed you to be satisfied. But it's not an easy road to get there because there's a lot of lies that you've got to delayer. And so Jesus takes that whole sick drama of Herod and he says, I just want to take a few points away from that. And one of them is, I want you to be a good steward of what I've been given you. But here's the last thing. Essentially, it's this. Jesus will reward the faithfulness of those who walk with him. And you may be thinking, okay, well, when it's all done and in the end, you know, somebody will get X number of trophies and somebody will get a lesser amount or something like that. I don't know about that as much as how the rewards begin even now. There is so much that is rewarding in being in a healthy relationship with other Christians. There's so much that is rewarding in seeing God work through your life and see people like Amy, that you mentioned, Diane, have the light bulb come on. And all of a sudden, you go from an uncertain, fearful, perhaps frustrated person to a calm presence that knows joy. And perhaps in the end, in the new creation, God may be saying, yeah, you're faithful, I'm going to give you responsibility. Don't know, but it, we know that in 1 Corinthians uh, oh, shoot, can't remember the passage now. It talks about that theme. And essentially it says, you'll, you know, if you're in Christ, you'll get there either by escaping the flames or you'll get there like the guys who invested their stuff and said, hey, you know what? We're on board. We're doing it. And that day of accounting, no worries. We just wish we could do more. And that really is the picture that he's trying to get them to think about on that trek up. If you've ever been hiking, you know that you just think a lot. You're looking at the back of the person's shoes in front of you, and you're just kind of meditating on stuff. And he's saying, we're getting ready to hike up this hill. And this is what I want you to think about, that this is going somewhere, and I want you to be a part of it. That guy on the hill in that palace, he's going nowhere. He just got lucky. But his day will come, and it will all come crumbling down. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a life lived trusting Jesus along the way, his way. And if you've been doing it for a while, I just want to encourage you in that. And if you haven't been doing it at all, maybe we can help you with the art of learning how to relate to him and to live with him, and to live under his care and authority in ways that hopefully will help you to see it. And I'm just praying that God will open our hearts to whatever it is that we need to see in light of this parable. We're going to move into our fellowship around the table. And as we transition to the table from this place across from the palace, Jesus establishes his kingdom he says, my kingdom is coming in that upper room where he's getting ready the next day to go and be arrested and crucified. He says, my kingdom's already here. It's coming alive. And it's coming alive in me because I'm creating a covenant, an agreement that says, I want you to be with me forever. I want you to know me forever. I want you to see me in 
your life through the eyes of faith. I want you to know forgiveness. I want you to know how it feels to be justified before the Lord, even though you felt so alienated from him because of what I've done for you. And so when he took the cup and he said, this is the blood that is being shed for the forgiveness of sins. He's looking into their eyes and he knows they have regrets. He knows that they have struggles. He knows that there are things there that are not what they should be. He said, just bring it here and we'll keep working on it. And when you see that body that's on the cross a couple of days ahead that you're not even aware of really right now, you can't even imagine. When you see that body, think about this as being broken and recognize that body was sent here earth so that you could see God firsthand in me and thank him because of the kind of God that we were able to see is for every one of us and wants nothing but the best for us but it can only come through him and so we see him at this table we look at the cup we think about forgiveness We look at the body and we think about him coming into my world, my home, my life. And we thank him. Lord Jesus, bless the loaf and the cup as we remember you, as we thank you, as we seek forgiveness, as we find calling through this as you move us from this place to ways that we can make you come alive in our world. We surrender our lives to you as we take these elements in Jesus' name.
love you, God. We praise you. We thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that we've heard. We pray that we take it and grow from it. Pray that you be with us through this week. And just let us remember always that you are with us always. And we praise you for that. As we go from this place, may we be your light to this world. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Well, for a reminder, check out the youth program and stop in the, the studio. Taking names for elder candidates. Um, and if you can, sign up for the barbecue if you're coming so we know how many people to kind of plan on. Hope you have a good week.